This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Mr. Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg, CEO of Facebook, spoke today or testified today in front of the House Financial Services Committee talking about a whole host of regulatory issues, including Libra, the Facebook's effort into cryptocurrency. Let's hear what he had to say. This project is too big for any one company to do on its own, which is why we, we set up this independent Libra association with a number of other companies and nonprofits. Um, it's, it's, very, it's a very complex project, and, and, and as you say, it's risky. That was Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg uh, speaking in front of the House Financial Services Committee today to get a sense of what it means for the company as they wade into the regulated area of cryptocurrency. We turn to Ben Elliott, financial policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ben joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. So, Ben, again, a, a lot of testimony today about Libra. What do you think are the big regulatory issues facing Facebook as they go into this new business line? So it went pretty well today for, for Facebook, all things considered. Um, sort of the biggest issues they have uh, in the sort of short term are proving to Treasury's OFAC and FinCEN that they have a, a, a pretty uh, strong anti-money laundering and combating the financing of terrorism regime in place before they launch. Uh, generally speaking, those are kind of the two biggest regulatory hurdles they'll have to get over. Um, and then sort of lacking a primary federal regulator elsewhere, um, you know, there's not much else that they have to do just to launch. Well, it's interesting, though, you know, that they're trying to do this, uh, you know, and we're all getting ready. One of the big stories we know in 2020 is going to be what new regulatory oversight we might get of big tech, including Facebook. So I wonder, with that backdrop and what we heard from lawmakers today, how likely is it that they're going to be able to move aggressively forward on something like Libra? Well, so Facebook is doing something interesting, which is they're separating out Libra into the subsidiary Calibra and also the Libra Association, which will operate as kind of an independent association out of Switzerland. So I think there's a, there's a future in which Facebook faces kind of a bigger, more comprehensive legislative package um, looking at privacy and cybersecurity and that um, the Libra project might actually fall into kind of a less regulated space. So one of the issues here, uh, Ben, is is the regulatory framework around financial services is just extraordinary and arguably a lot more stringent than it is on social media, for example. So is there any indication that Mark Zuckerberg does have a full appreciation for that? What did you hear today? Uh, So, look, a lot of details uh, need to be hashed out before they can launch and before this starts to add meaningfully to Facebook's revenue. it's clear that Facebook is talking with sort of everyone who will be important to them in the future for this product. But, I mean, this is just at like the very beginning stages. Uh, so I think they have a lot of work to do uh, before they can launch the product. Um, and I think most of it will have to do with proving to Treasury that this isn't going to be used for illicit purposes. So I do wonder, too, Ben, if they align themselves with one of the well-established banks, um, probably unlikely, but if they did, whether it was a J.P. Morgan or somebody else, would they automatically um, kind of get more acceptance up on Capitol Hill and certainly among regulators here in the U.S. and maybe even globally? 
So I actually think that they are sort of avoiding a really close association with kind of the giants of financial services. Um, the, the Federal Reserve doesn't really have any explicit authority to regulate something like Libra, but they do have authority to look at people who do business with banks. Uh, so if Facebook were to enter some sort of partnership where, where say, a J.P. Morgan would be pretty explicitly exposed to Libra through the Reserve Fund or through some other mechanism, then that would allow kind of the Federal Reserve to go in and, and do a deeper dive on Libra. So it's just another example of big tech, new tech, innovation just forging ahead, right? And the regulatory environment kind of isn't there and they can't keep up. I, I think that what we've seen today is that Congress is, is so far not a very effective sort of uh, counterpoint to Facebook in this debate. Um, you know, they, they essentially don't even really know what they need to do in terms of new legislation. Uh, and so there doesn't appear to be a very clear path forward for Congress. So what is your sense? I, you know, I noticed that some of their partners that they'd signed up initially have kind of backed off a little bit. What do you make of that? So that's interesting. Um, you know, all of those companies have existing financial services, core businesses, and they have relationships with regulators who have sort of expressed skepticism of Libra. Um, so I think it's sort of a smart move on the part of those companies to pull back. But if you look at each of the sort of press releases that came out saying that, you know, such and such a company was withdrawing from the Libra Association, each one sort of included a little addendum at the end, like, we, you know, we might join back in in the future if this becomes a really important part of the payment system. Hey, Ben, just to sum up, um, I'm just looking at shares of Facebook, and they're just up about 1.4% in today's session. What's the takeaway for investors as they try to kind of make sense of, you know, it's a lot, that was a lot of questions. It went on uh, for a long time. So what should be kind of the key takeaway here? Well, I mean, the key takeaway is that this is a long timeline, uh, you know, one to two years uh, sort of at the short end. But the, the other thing that was really interesting to me was uh, Zuckerberg discussed sort of monetizing ads and um, the ad auction that Facebook uses um, allows advertisers to bid more money as the ads become more effective. And he made for the first time a really explicit connection between Libra reducing um, frictions between um, a user seeing an ad and then buying a product uh, and being able to sell that ad for more money. So I think that that's like a very real impact on their revenue in the future uh, if they can get this thing launched and it's successful. Gotta love it. All right, gonna leave it there. Hey, Ben, thank you so much. Appreciate your insight. Ben Elliott, financial policy analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence on the phone from Washington, D.C. I ain't superstitious, but a black cat Black Cat Caterpillar lowered its earnings forecast for 2019, blaming heightened economic uncertainty for slowing customer purchases. But guess what? The stock's up 1.2%. Go figure. To help us kind of walk us through what happened in the quarter and the current outlook for our good friends at Caterpillar, we welcome Joe Doe. Joe is a metals and mining reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us live here in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Joe, I'm just looking at the intraday chart today for, for Caterpillar. It started the day down yeah. uh, after the numbers were released, but now we're in positive territory. What do you think is going on? Yeah, it's, it, it looks a lot like its stock chart for the year 2019, right? Up, down, up, down. Uh, I've I, seen I, the, this movie before. Right? Absolutely. I mean, the initial earnings came out very early this morning, 630. This is the first time in a generation that they've put it out this early. Uh, but the, the numbers were downgrade in their adjusted earnings forecast for 2019. They missed earnings uh, by quite a bit. So nothing looked good on the surface of it. Jim Umpleby saying in his statement, and then of course in the following call with the analysts, uh, that economic uncertainty was leading a lot of their customers to hold off on buying. And Andrew Bonfield, the CFO, told me in a call that I had with him shortly before the analyst call, 
call that, hey, listen, um, we're looking through Cat Financial, their arm that does financing for people who want to buy their machines. And they said, listen, the customers aren't having trouble coming up with cash. It's just that they're sitting on the sidelines not buying because their customers uh, seem to have a lot of questions as to demand going ahead because of the trade war and the global growth question slowdown going across the globe. So, Joe, it's real. I mean, in other words, you know, I think this is an environment where you can have a lot of companies say, yeah, I'm like, we don't know what's going on. So everybody's nervous. And that explains maybe a shortfall. But it looks like it's real in terms of people holding back on, you know, expenditures. Absolutely. I was talking to an analyst at Edward Jones this morning, and, and he said, listen, uh, this is one of those times where the company says we can't really forecast out to 2020 because of the uncertainty, and it's a fair point to make because you're finally seeing all of this flow through the balance sheet. You're seeing it flow through their customers saying we're holding off on buying because we don't know, yeah. and if they don't know, then Caterpillar doesn't know, and and we're really hitting. You know, we're re- this is a this is really a different period that we're hitting. Uh, I've listened to a lot of steel earnings calls already, and 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 they, you know, they're saying, well, demand's fine, things are flat, but Caterpillar's a different beast. This is a company that is in every major market across the globe, and they are telling you right now, we don't want to make a call for 2020. Uh, that's some pretty serious stuff. Interesting. The uh, I know there's when I think about Caterpillar, I think about oil and gas, construction, mining. They're in some of these just these huge capital-intensive industries. Yeah. Did they talk about? Any one of their segments particularly weak or were the regions particularly weak? Are they just saying across the board we're seeing skittishness? Well, you know, across the board there is kind of this question over demand. But they did point to um, the fact that they're expecting more inventory drawdowns in North America. A lot of people expected North America, U.S. not to be very good this quarter. It actually turned out to be better than expected. They saw an uptick in machine sales in North America. But... Uh, as the CFO warned me on the call that I had with him, he's like, listen, we do expect a lot of inventory drawdown. We're expecting demand to actually diminish a little bit in the fourth quarter in North America. They also pointed to Asia, not specifically to China, but they, they did say in general, uh, the kind of the outlook in Asia is not as good as they have uh, as seen in, in, in recent years. You know, I want... One thing I want to ask you is Caterpillar, I mean, this is a company that we often, you know, they have an in-house economic team. Like, we care what they have to say because they really do have um, some great visibility on the global economy. So based on what we're hearing, I mean, the R word, we started off the show, in terms of recession, it goes back and forth. I think if you look at forecasts, the uh, possibility of a recession was higher for the U.S. earlier in the year than it is now. But how do we, so what do we read into this, or should we? Well, Caterpillar's not using the R word, and they are still projecting growth, right? So if you're talking 4 to 6% growth in North American machine sales, you're still talking growth. The worry is how much of a slowdown are we talking here? Um, obviously, I think that's the kind of color that analysts were really pressing for in the call this morning. Yeah. They did not get. Uh, I don't think Caterpillar's in the position to say that they believe in, in the recession question, but... Well, they, they, so they were asked it and they said no. Well, they weren't asked specifically about recession, but they kept getting asked about this trade question. Oh, well, you know, you're saying that trade is leading to this economic uncertainty and and they really wouldn't go further like I you know one person asked well do you, do you think this could get solved they, they they're honestly saying they have no idea if some sort of resolution will come to China US trade relations um, and, and I think on you know that's what you're just hearing from every CEO on these earnings calls so far through the uh, third quarter um, uh, calendar. We just don't know. Yeah, just don't know. But that uncertainty, I think we're going to hear a lot of yeah. that, not just from the big uh, uh, manufacturer, the, you know, big construction companies like uh, Caterpillar. Joe Doe, thanks so much for joining us. Joe covers metals on mining for Bloomberg News. Joining us live here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Paul, the luxury department store 
uh, chain Nordstrom, they've been around for more than 100 right. years, right? And what's interesting is not until this week did they actually have a store in New York City. Oh, I didn't know that. I yeah. did not know that. And now, been, you make, now that you mention it. Yeah, and they've been working on it for uh, a long, to- uh, long, long time. So that store is opening up tomorrow. Uh, we did another edition of Business Week Talks. I caught up with Eric Nordstrom. He's the co-president of Nordstrom, and we talked about uh, why finally here in New York. The big challenge, even more so than location, was the right space. Uh, you know, f- for what we do, uh, and and knowing if we were to come here, we had to be our very, very best. Uh, and so the the space is super important for us to have high ceilings, big open space where customers uh, can easily navigate and and. Uh, find what they're looking for, discover new fashion. Um, and most buildings are office buildings. They're low ceilings and right. elevators not in the ideal. middle. So it, it this area not only came up that we really like being a, a little oriented towards the west side, but being able to start from the, from the ground and build uh, the building that we want, uh, really what tipped us over. And certainly accessible from both the east and west side, uptown, downtown, in terms of kind of a central location. Sure, yeah. I look for things. You know, there, there's three... Kind of constituencies uh, certainly start and, and really end with locals, people who live here. How are, how are we a, a part of the city, a part of the neighborhood? Uh, so this location thing we think does that. Uh, there's obviously a lot of people uh, commute in to work, and so the, the subway stops, the transportation is important. Right. Uh, and then there's visitors. You know, so, uh, New York's such a great international destination, and to be uh, close to the biggest tourist attraction in New York, Central Park and Columbus Circle there, uh, we felt really good about I got to talk to you about the environment, Eric. I know you read the headlines. You follow, obviously, your space. But, I mean, I think about Lord & Taylor closing, Saks closing a downtown location, Bendel's closing, Barney's going into bankruptcy. I mean, I think some people would say, wait, why are you doing this? Why, you know, how does that or how has that factored in in terms of some of the closings and what you folks wanted to do? Well, yeah, there's uh, certainly our industry, like a lot of industries, going through tremendous change. And uh, but. It's actually not that much change. It's, you know, people shop as as they want to shop. Uh, I certainly believe that customers are more empowered than ever before, uh, less willing to compromise uh, any of their experience with shopping, uh, including in that. And, uh, you know, in our industry, we talk about uh, things like omni-channel. I know you guys hate that from what I've read. Well, yeah. (laughs) I I talk to customers every day. uh, And... I've never had a customer use the word channel with me. It's, it's not how they think. They right. just want great experiences. And uh, the reality is, uh, if you are to force a definition of channel, uh, the vast majority of, of the categories we sell are bought in stores. But much more accurately is uh, people are on their phones and they're in physical locations, and they want it when they want it. Uh, they want it on their terms. And uh, certainly New York is uh, you know, the greatest retail center, certainly in our, in our country and, and maybe in the world. And uh, you know, for us to be a leader in our industry, and we've been at this a long time, and right. we've been a national company for a long time, but, but to really uh, be the leader that uh, we think we can be, uh, we have to have our best presence in New York. But I do think people think, okay, so how will Nordstrom be different than maybe some of the troubles that a Lord and Taylor fell into? Or I'm not saying you guys are apples to apples or, you know, Saks closing downtown or Bendel's. Like, how will it be different for you? Well, first of all, there's a lot of success stories out there. If, if you expand the definition of, of retail, a lot of categories, which, which we can get into, but there's a, a lot of 
uh, stores and retailers that I would admire. Uh, but again, I, we've always been well served focusing on, focusing on the customer. You know, we we started as a shoe store yeah. over a hundred years ago. Uh, I grew up selling shoes, uh, and and one of the things about selling shoes is you are literally on your hands and knees in front of the customer, trying to take care of them, yeah. uh, and that. Uh, it's a good metaphor for for how we try to continue to, to run the business. And if we focus on the customer, and, and certainly the customer wants things that are different. And building a new uh, physical store today gives us some advantages. We have technology built into the store, uh, Wi-Fi, cell service, connect that con- connectivity. So customers can be on their phone uh, and a lot of product discovery uh, for what we sell, fashion. Right begins uh, online. And we know that you know, over half of our store sales uh, involve uh, a visit to our website, usually on someone's phone. I am curious too about the holidays. Have you guys, I mean, your timing is impeccable <laughs> as we're all gearing up for the holidays. What are your expectations for fourth quarter? You know, it's a challenging environment out there. I think there's some some reasons to be optimistic uh, for holiday. And uh, I've seen some numbers that that we expected to be maybe a little bit higher than what we've seen in the recent past. I've seen around that. The- I've seen that too. <laughs> Us retailers, we tend to be optimistic, but uh, uh, yeah, I think there's reasons for to be optimistic for holiday. Tell me about the consumer overall, because I love talking to folks like you. Because I think we are at this time where we're trying to figure out. Is the expansion getting old? Uh, The big macro stories continue to bother us, whether it's trade, whether it's Brexit, and so on and so forth. Um, How do you see the U.S. consumer right now? We really, you know, we talk about caring from Vans to Valentino. I mean, that that is a key part of what we do is having a a breadth of merchandise. And really, I think that's how a modern customer shops today, that a customer doesn't buy one brand and stick to it or even one price point. There's a, a mix and matching uh, that people put together. That's that's part of fashion. That's part of uh, the interest of expressing who you are. Uh, I, the, the health of the customer is is good, uh, but what we focus on, it's much more about what we do. I mean, we're not in an industry where you know there's this massive market share, and really any movement has to be uh, at a market level. Uh, there's plenty of places to buy shoes and clothes. Uh, so our success is much more on what we do. Well, they've always been about service, right? Yes. um, You know, and that, of course, was Eric Nordstrom, co-president of Nordstrom, uh, just catching up. Their big store here in Manhattan opening tomorrow. It's 320,000 square feet. It's seven stories. It's been a long time coming. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, they have always been kind of known for service. And I think they're really playing into it. This store in Manhattan, you can order food and it will be brought to you. Um, They really are thinking about the space physically. It's a place to go and have kind of a little bit of an experience uh, as well. So they want people to come and stay for a while. And they really are, I feel like, in terms of retail, exploring so many different options. E-commerce has been growing pretty rapidly for them. They have Nordstrom local stores where you don't buy any clothes, but they have services like a stylist or a tailor so you can stop in and have things done. They also will accept exchanges from other retailers there. So it's really fascinating to see how they're doing things differently. So for better or worse, U.S. and global markets, man, they are uh, entwined with American politics. So let's talk about this because this 
is one of the stories in the year ahead issue of the magazine. Michael Regan, he keeps an eye on the financial markets for us here at uh, Bloomberg. He's senior editor, lead blogger of the Bloomberg Markets Live blog. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. I love this story. Um, and I just want to go back to, I know you and I talked about it earlier. You start the story, you go to visit one strategist. And what do you see? Right, right. Uh, Lori Calvacina at uh, at RBC. Uh, uh, we've had her on uh, the podcast a few times, and smart strategist. But she <clears throat> is looking at the polling charts of all the different candidates. The way she looks at stock charts, and you know, she compares Elizabeth Warren to a small cap momentum stock, just because she's really surging in the in the polls and. That. She says Joe Biden looks at like a, uh, a broken large cap. She advises oh shorting Biden and and, uh, and going along Elizabeth Warren. Now, since that uh, since no that observation, no works in the mix or anything. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know. You wake up tomorrow and and you don't know what the polls are going to show. I mean, since she made that, obviously Biden's come up a little yeah. bit in the polls. Uh, but to me, what's fascinating is that. You know, all these investors and strategists who grew up reading Graham and Dodd and studying for the CFA exam, all of a sudden they have to be political science experts uh, as well. Because, um, you know, obviously since the 2016 election, Trump has really roiled markets, you know, up and down, uh, depending on the last tweet or the last policy decision, currency, not just stock markets, currency markets, everything. Um, it doesn't look like that's going to go away, the political effect on markets, especially as, if Warren stays prominent in the race, because when you look at her policies, I mean, you know, the joke is she has a plan for everything. Almost all of them uh, have a potential impact on major sectors of the economy and the stock market. So, um, I, you know, I think a lot of the investor strategists out there can kind of uh, breathe a sigh of relief when Biden gets ahead in the polls because his platform is not built on on sort of disrupting and, and changing the status quo of a lot of big industries. But uh, Warren, her platform touches on, on, on almost everything. So it's becoming a game of trying to figure out, well, what are her priorities? What will she actually be able to get through Congress? Uh, what can she accomplish with executive orders uh, and that sort of thing? And the answer is, boy, it's tricky. There's there's so many different variables and potential outcomes for next year um, that it, it, there's almost paralysis in trying to trade it right now. So stock market strategist Lori here. How far down the list of Democratic uh, nominees <laughs> did she, did you get her? She she just, uh, just mentioned those two. That, I, I talked to her uh, after seeing that in a, a note of hers that she, uh, you know, but it's, it, to me, it's a great sort of metaphor for what I think everybody in the market is doing right now is trying to handicap who the potential winner will be in this race. And, you know, it's not just that. It's will there be a sweep uh, of both houses of Congress? What if Trump, you know, uh, hangs on and wins? Um, there's so many potential variables and outcomes that um, it's, it's dizzying. But I think... When it will really start to get interesting, I think, and the, the strategist I, I, I talked to uh, spoke about this, is um, in the fall, or I'm sorry, in the, in the spring, late winter to spring, like late February, March, when we start to get the primary results. Once you get those first few primary results, we'll have a better indication of if there is a clear front runner. Yeah. Um, it better get interesting in the fall. Right, right in the fall, in the spring, rather. The Southern Hemisphere fall. Is there any 
bullish case for Warren from the financial perspective? Well, sort of everyone's knee-jerk reaction is she scares the heck out of Wall Street. And, and you read a lot of stories about this. I think, um, you know, you have to sort of separate the issues from that sort of gut reaction. And, you know, a lot of the sort of, you know, very wealthy are worried about that wealth tax. And that elicits right. a very negative reaction from her. But if you think of some of her policies, um, you know, for example, raising the minimum wage certainly would have uh, an impact on the margins, uh, private margins for a lot of companies. But it would give a lot more people a lot more money to spend. Um, And even when she talks about breaking up big tech, um, I'm not convinced that's a net negative for the stock market. Um, If you were to say split uh, Alphabet into Google and and YouTube or, or whatever else, I mean, all of a sudden you have more sort of high growth companies to, to look at. Um, this, it reminds me of something a, a few years ago when the banks were, uh, everyone was talking about breaking up the banks. There are a few analysts who came out and said, it's not a bad idea for shareholders too. You know, not just from a regulatory sort right. of uh, prudential, macro prudential standpoint, but from a shareholder standpoint, um, there's an argument to be made in some cases uh, of breaking these up. So the other thing that you touched on in your story is this idea of the pain trade. Yeah. Where, where does that land and what, what does it mean? And you just got about 20 seconds. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I talked to our own Gina Martin-Adams about that. She said, so many people are so defensive, so worried about next year that the quote-unquote pain trade would likely be a rally in the market. <laughs> like you got too pessimistic, right? Everyone's you set up all, your portfolio that way, and then all of a sudden it's like rally. exactly everyone's on the wrong side Trump, of the boat. If you remember when he was first Absolutely. elected, futures sold off, and then we ended up having a rally. Right. So you never know. Anyway, it's a great read. It's a great issue the year ahead. Everything that you need to know for 2020. So I highly recommend it. Um, Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Mike Regan, senior editor and lead blogger of Bloomberg Markets Live blog. Both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Quincy Crosby is back with us, Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial, joining us on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Quincy, nice to have you here. We are in the thick of earnings. Um, Tell me so far, how does it feel to you in terms of the results, uh, growth or lack thereof, and what we're hearing from the C-suite? Well, you know, technically, of the approximately 124 companies that have reported about 80 81% have actually topped their earnings per share estimates. Now, granted, estimates had come down quite uh, markedly, but also about 63% have topped their um, their revenue uh, growth estimates. And we look for revenue growth, Carol, because mm-hmm. that is a picture of how, how many widgets have we sold, how many contracts have we closed. It's interesting, too, that overall the market has been selective. It's punished the stocks that haven't performed, and yet today – You've seen Caterpillar uh, uh, higher uh, after a sell-off this morning and and, and right after they they reported. And Boeing is actually up. So the market, I think, is trying to 
figure out where we're headed vis-a-vis uh, vis the trade truth. Uh, because that could certainly help a name like Caterpillar, a bellwether uh, for this uh, th this tariff uh, war, and also on Boeing, uh, which you know actually is in that list of of, of names that we, we want the Chinese to be buying, and, and they're and they're saying that they will stick to the schedule in terms of the max. So uh, the market has pushed through three thousand, and it looks like it wants to go, uh, you know, and, and hit a new level. Yeah, it's interesting, Quincy, you mentioned uh, Boeing and Caterpillar. I'm actually surprised that those stocks and the market in general, uh, based upon those earnings, is, is trading as well as it is or as calmly as it is. Because you could make the argument that, boy, we really got a problem uh, kind of in middle America as it relates to some of our industrial companies. And, you know, then it raises the question, how long can that consumer buck the trend? But uh, the market seems pretty sanguine right here. Do you think the market's simply saying, hey, we've got a, the Fed on our side and that's the most important thing? Well, absolutely. I mean, that is that is a help. But I think it's also that the market does think that there is going to be a, a at least at the very least a, some sort of truce, and that we will not see a an escalation in, um, in 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 the tariff war. Just just you know, just being flat out toward the end of the year sh should help. But in terms of the Fed, uh, yeah, we, the market expects a rate cut in October. The, the Fed is in the quiet period. They've done nothing even before the quiet period to walk the market back from those expectations. And the Fed is also putting money into uh, the Treasury market. They, they refuse to call it a quantitative easing exercise. But the fact is it's actually uh, – quite a bit of liquidity that's going in, uh, in $60 billion a month on the short end of the yield curve. That'll go through the second quarter of uh, 2020. And it's interesting that when um, Chairman Bernanke began quantitative easing officially, it was $45 billion a month that he was buying. Of course, it was on the 10-year Treasury. Um, you know, by the time the Fed finishes, they will own uh, approximately 12 percent of the outstanding um, treasury, um, which, uh, the outstanding treasuries, uh, as opposed to the one percent they own now. That's a lot of liquidity. Don't call it a quantitative easing exercise, but whatever it is, the market likes it. So I am curious too, Quincy, in terms of the presidential trade. We uh, talked earlier with Jill Weber and our Mike Regan, who watches the financial markets. Jill, of course, editor of Business Week magazine. There's a story uh, coming up in the current issue that talks about the connection between, of course, elections and markets. And I do wonder, mm -hmm. you know, if you're starting to kind of think about that, maybe place some money on where you think this may may go, or do you think it's still too early? I think it's still too early, although you're going to have zigs and zags with that, depending on, on who's leading. You know, the market sniffs these things out as we go along. Remember that before Joe Biden actually came in officially into the um, into the equation, the managed care names were beaten down as the uh, left wing of the Democratic Party in unison talked about uh, universal uh, health care, um, Medicare, Me Medicaid. And then when Joe Biden actually came in officially, suddenly the bellwether name, uh, United Healthcare, got a beautiful bid. Um, the market looks for this. But let's also remember, Carol, going into the election when President um, Trump came in, the market had expected um, Hillary Clinton. Uh, it was fine with that. It expected a, a Republican Senate. And it said, you know, we could deal with this. And that night of the election itself, 
uh, gold got a bid out of fear that, that it was Trump coming in. Uh, the Treasury market got a bid. The, the Mexican peso crashed against the U.S. dollar. And the futures market was horrible. The next day, the market did a major turnaround, hasn't looked back since. The market, investors trade and invest in the market they have, not the one they want. And they will do so even if it's uh, someone wins who is not exactly poised to be helpful to the market. So, Quincy, it looks like we may be approaching kind of the final rounds of Brexit. I I kind of catch myself every time I say that because there's always another (laughs) round, it seems like. But... What do you think the market's discounting here? I'm just looking at uh, sterling up a little bit here at 129. It was at 130. Uh, what do you think the market's discounting right here? I think the market is, is, is seeing that that perhaps it can it can get through uh, that that he, he gets an extension uh, and that and that it, it will be it will be out of the headlines. That's when the when the British pound sterling climbs higher. That's that's the signal that the market is suggesting that we move closer. Also, if you notice just before uh, the pulled out yesterday, right, and the market came down, the U.S. dollar was weaker, which was helpful for our industrials because the British pound sterling and the euro climbed higher against the U.S. dollar. So, again, it's yeah. telling us that it thinks it's going to happen. All right, Quincy, thank you so much. Quincy Crosby, she's Chief Market Strategist at Prudential Financial, on the phone from Newark, New Jersey. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.